Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We continue in our study of this passage of Scripture. We began last week looking at immorality among the saints and weren't able to uh, complete the entirety of that message. So I want to do a little bit of a review and had some opportunity to rework the latter half of that message. I think it's, I've learned it's better to have two messages than to have one that's an hour and some minutes. So that's kind of hard to, uh, to do. So anyway, we're uh, looking at a, a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. And as a way of reintroducing us to this passage, it's good for us to be reminded that the Corinthian Christians were a product of their culture and of their environment, just as you and I are today. Our upbringing, our influences, our experiences, our parents, the time in which we were raised, all of these things have an influence on us. And just like the Corinthians, they can be very, very difficult to let go of even after our lives have been radically changed through the grace of God. Now, the Corinthians were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek culture, and a part of their regular practice was to engage in temple prostitution, which was prevalent within the city of Corinth. It was hard for them to give up their worldly wisdom and their worldly philosophy. It was hard for them to let go of their pride and of their divisiveness. And it was hard for them to give up their life of sexual immorality. Now, Paul concluded in the previous section, as we were looking at lawsuits among the saints, he started to talk about how the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it seemed to be out of place as an introduction into what we now see as immorality among the saints. But this this mentioning of these ten lifestyles, four of which include some form of sexual immorality, provide a segue into what it is that Paul is going to bring to our attention and to theirs to challenge them as what was taking place in their church without any checks, any balances, any confrontation of any kind. And the clue that we see here is in verses 15 and 16 with the mention of temple prostitution. Now, much of Greek religious expression included sexual freedom, and many of the Greek temples included prostitutes as a part of the religious experience. Now, that's unthinkable to us. But there are all kinds of unusual things that take place under the guise of worship and religion in our world, and most of these would be a shock to us because they don't fit into what our understanding of what biblical worship is really like. So sexual relationship with temple prostitutes was so common that the practice came to be called Corinthianizing. And as I mentioned several passages ago, Many people longed for a journey into the city of Corinth because of all of the debauchery that the city had to offer. So let's look back now at verses 12 through 20 as we go through our passage today. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So by way of review, looking at the first two main points, which I've already filled in the blanks for you in your outline, is the principle. And the principle is proposed to the Corinthians from the perspective of a very common Greek saying or a common Corinthian saying that they would be aware of, and that is, all things are lawful for me. Now, many believe that this was a popular Corinthian phrase that Paul was going to use against them as they have inappropriately applied that saying to what is a hallmark teaching of Paul's, and that is Christian liberty. When Paul taught about Christian liberty, his primary emphasis was speaking about how we have liberty in our salvation that is freed from any semblance of works righteousness. Works righteousness has always been a challenge within Christianity, and it is still a challenge today. For example, if you were to ask the average person on the street, If you were to stand before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Almost everybody who is not a professing believer would say, well, I've been a good person. I've tried really hard. I don't do this and I don't do that. And I try to do this and that and the other. And so what we create for ourselves is a scale. And if we can tip the scale in favor of good things, then surely God would be pleased with that and would let us into heaven. So Christianity has always struggled with a works righteousness. And what Paul emphatically taught is that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So as Paul introduces to the Corinthian church the slogan or the saying that they were very familiar with, and now begins to use it against them, the first thing that we see is the Christian caution. We see this in verse 12. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Profitable means to have an advantage. So their application of Christian freedom has led them into an acceptance of sexual sin. Now, is that what Paul meant by Christian liberty? No, by no means. That's not what Paul had in mind at all. So the question we must ask ourselves is not, is this activity permissible for me? Because we probably could find a way to justify it in some form or fashion. But the question is, is this profitable for me? Is this going to bring good to my life? Is this good for me spiritually? Is this good for my witness and my testimony? Is this good amongst the saints of which I am called? That's the question that we really need to ask ourselves when we begin to apply Christian liberty to the activities that we allow to be a part of our life. So in the same way that they were able to tolerate the sin of incest, they accepted the practice of temple prostitution and saw nothing wrong with that. So Paul adds to Christian caution the real issue, and that is Christian capture. All things are lawful for me, but 
but I will not be mastered by anything. That phrase to be mastered means to exercise authority over. And when Paul uses that phrase, he most certainly carries with it the connotation of sin. So it's obvious that Paul has concluded that their application of freedom, Christian freedom, has led them to becoming dominated by or controlled by sexual sin, which was prevalent amongst their culture and became a product of their choice. Now, when Paul was with them, as recorded in the book of Acts, for some 18 months and founded the church and led many of them to the Lord, he most certainly dealt with temple prostitution and sexual immorality and the biblical standards of purity that God had given to him and to the others and had held out for all believing, for all of the believing community from the beginning of time. But they had chosen to set it aside and instead embraced the worldly wisdom and philosophy that allowed them to engage in temple prostitution without really batting an eye. That's the principle. The premise that we look at here is based upon prevalent Greek thought. Paul is taking what they have said and what they think he is, and what, what they think And he is using this against them in his argument. So remember that much Greek philosophy considered everything physical, including the body, to be basically evil and therefore of no value. What was then done with or to the body did not matter since it was evil. Therefore, it was not sin. So their premise was this. Food is for the stomach, and stomach and stomach was for food, and sex is sex, and my body is made for sex. Sex was just a biological function, just like eating, and, and it was to be used as food was used to satisfy their appetites. Now, most of the time, when you go to the kitchen or you stop at the restaurant, you do so because your body has an appetite to be fed, right? So in the same way, our sinful body, our flesh, has an appetite to be fed the things that God has said we are not to have. So they want to satisfy their appetites. And Paul illuminates this in verse 13 by saying, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. So while there is a biological relationship between food and the stomach, after all the food, the stomach is used to digest the food after it was eaten, in a similar way, man has a sexual appetite, which in their minds is a biological function and sexual immorality is how they have chosen to satisfy this biological appetite. This is how they have become captured by their understanding or their application of Christian liberty. So Paul is going to identify problems with this premise that they have. The first thing he says is appetites are temporary. Continuing in verse 13, but God will do away with both of them, 
stomach, and food. Neither the stomach or the need for food will be our reality in our eternal state. Both of them will be done away with, which is what Paul says here. So Paul has now introduced a resurrection reality into their thinking, and this will also correct their faulty premise. Now, as a reminder, going all the way back to one of the first messages that I preached out of the book of Corinthians, one of the challenges that the church in Corinth had was a proper understanding of a literal physical resurrection. So Paul introduces a resurrection reality into this teaching. What he says here is, number two, the body is the Lord's. Continuing in verse 13. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Their entire premise is wrong because they think the body should be given over to whatever appetite it has, whether it be food, whether it be power, whether it be fame or anything else. And in this specific instance, they have an appetite for sexual immorality and that is what they've given themselves over to. But immorality isn't what the body was created for. It was created for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So if God is for the body, it undoes this premise that they have that the body is evil and what it does or what is done to it doesn't matter because it's evil. Paul turns this upside down and says that's not accurate. The body belongs to the Lord and the Lord is for your body. So to further emphasize the point, Paul introduces here the specific resurrection proof. Verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Our bodies are designed not only to serve the Lord in this life, but also in the life to come. They will be changed bodies, resurrected bodies, glorified bodies, heavenly bodies, but they will still be our own bodies. Now, there's a lot of mystery that surrounds that, and Paul doesn't busy himself with trying to explain that part of it, what he wants to do is to correct the faulty premise and prove his point through this resurrection proof. So the stomach and food have a horizontal, temporal relationship, and at death that relationship ceases. But our bodies are far far more than biological, and for believers they have a spiritual relationship vertical relationship. They belong to God and they will forever endure with God. And in the new heaven and the new earth, our bodies will serve the Lord. Now we get into the new portion of the message here. Number three on our outline, and that is the partnership. So as Paul continues to prove his point by identifying their principle and showing the fault in how they've applied that principle, and the faulty premise they've had, sharpened by the proof of the resurrection, Paul uses some very important, yet some very sobering pictures to emphasize his point about this partnership. This partnership is our union with Christ. By grace, through faith, we have entered into an eternal union with Christ that cannot be separated. 
think about that. Through our union with Christ, God has partnered with us for all eternity based upon His grace and the faith He's allowed us to have to know who He is. So our union with, our union with Christ is expressed in two ways. The first one is physically. Verse 15a, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So in our union with Christ, we have been joined with Him physically. Now, we can't take that literally in the sense that we are Siamese twins, that He is physically attached to my side. But what Paul teaches and what the Bible emphasizes is that there is this physical union that is taking place between us and Christ. It's expressed in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 this way. And He, the Father, put all things in subjection under His feet, under Christ's feet, and gave Him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Paul would also say in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul speaks of an incredibly rich mystery that not only are you and I members of the body of Christ, and therefore joined with Him physically, but we are also members of one another as the singular body of Christ. Now, we could try to dissect that out for hours, but we're going to come back to this basic understanding. By faith, we accept what the Word of God says to us, that we are members of Christ's body. We are members of one another. And because of that, there is this union that exists that we cannot see. One of the great truths of the Bible is very simply this, that we have been joined to Christ for all eternity. We were sin-cursed, sin-sick, sin-stained people, and He washed us, and He cleansed us, and He made us holy, and He adopted us as His children. He sealed us in the Holy Spirit. He joined us to His Son. He made us joint heirs with Christ for all eternity. We have been joined to Him. God has initiated a partnership with us for all eternity through our salvation. Paul has just reminded them of this incredible truth in the previous section that we looked at. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he begins to identify this unrighteous lifestyle. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here Here's the point. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You were, but now you are, and you are joined as a member of the body of Christ. We are living spiritual temples in which Christ lives because we are members 
of His body. So Paul asks the question here in verse 15, which is absolutely absurd on its face, but it has to be asked as a wake-up call to the Corinthian church. Verse 15b, Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And so what Paul is saying here is that in our, through our salvation, we have been made members of the body of Christ. And by the willful choice of the Corinthian church, they are taking themselves out of that membership, if you will, and they are choosing to join themselves physically to a temple prostitute. Now, it's not a loss of salvation. It's not forsaking the partnership. It is a picture image to portray something that is incredibly important. You have been joined to Christ, and where you go, and in all that you do, you take Him with you. Wow, I thought about it like that. Anytime anyone engages in a sexual relationship, they are creating a physical union with that person. Now, you can throw out things like a one-night stand or a fling in a moment of passion, but I want to tell you that biblically, when two people engage in a physical union, there is a bond that begins to take place. This is why... It is always so much more difficult to break up with a person that you've been physically involved with than it is with someone that you have not. This is why in the reading that I have done and some of the counseling that I have done, girls particularly find it incredibly difficult to break up someone they've engaged in a physical relationship with because they feel like if they break up, they're losing a part of themselves. That's the union that is that God talks about that is a part of this physical relationship. There is so much more going on in the moment of a physical relationship than we have the ability to identify or single out, but it runs deep and it is powerful and it becomes a hook in the life of some people and they say, I can't break up with that person. I would rather marry them and regret it than to break up with them and feel like I've lost a part of myself. So this union is seen scripturally as an enduring bond that is reserved for the marriage relationship. Let me ask you this. Do you think that in God's infinite wisdom, He designed something to take place in the confines of a marriage relationship that would be so strong and so binding, and so unique, that it would make the thought or the idea of divorce just unthinkable. It's exactly what he did. God designed it that when man and woman engage in a physical relationship, there is an enduring bond that makes that union significantly different and unique from any other relationship. 
that we will find ourselves in. In temple prostitution and in all physical sexual immorality, joining oneself to that person makes them one or creates a bond with that person. Paul's conclusion is that the temple prostitution that the Corinthians participated in was subjecting Christ's body to the sexual immorality. Is this appropriate? Is this acceptable? Is this pleasing to God? Is this why Jesus died on the cross? So that we could subject his body to sexual immorality? Paul says, may it never be. But this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. To make this point about this physical union so important, Paul provides the marriage example. Verse 16, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Now wait a minute. Why would Paul pull up that phrase in the middle of this conversation or this challenge of sexual immorality? Well, one part of what is designed to make the marriage relationship unique and different from all other relationships is the oneness that is created at marriage and celebrated in this special physical union. Unique. Different. Singular. And so Paul quotes from Genesis, using God's design and approval for marriage in this phrase of one flesh. That phrase one flesh is the most essential meaning for the sexual union that exists in God's design in the marriage relationship. God has ordained this and God has blessed this union. He said, in fact, in, in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And we're not going to get into all that, but that's important to know. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, sex isn't bad. Sex isn't wrong. Sex isn't dirty. Sex is designed by God within a marriage relationship to be a beautifully unique union of one flesh that God has blessed and designed for very specific purposes. But under the guise of Christian liberty, the Corinthians have abandoned the sacred union restricted to marriage and willingly joined themselves to temple prostitutes. So not only are we members of Christ's body physically, but also, number two, spiritually. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now that statement is filled with profound meaning and amazing implications. But for Paul's purpose here, he's using it to show that a Christian who commits sexual immorality involves the Lord because of this spiritual union. So you might argue, well, I don't physically see Jesus I don't see and experience me being a member of his body, but Paul emphasizes that we are members with Christ spiritually.
All sex outside of marriage is sin, but when it is committed by believers, it is especially disgraceful because it profanes Jesus Christ with whom we have been made one. Remembering what Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer in John 17, He says to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You sent Me. You see, in our partnership, and our union with Christ, we have been spiritually joined to the Father through the Son. Why? So the world may believe that the Father sent Christ. And so what does this say about the believer? What does this say about a believer's profession of faith? What does it say about the testimony, the witness, and the life of Christ? when a Christian engages in sexual immorality. You see, we've been spiritually joined to Him, and we are taking Him everywhere we go. And in a spiritual sense, He is partnering with us in everything that we do. Well, you know, I, I, I haven't ever committed adultery. I've never been involved in sexual immorality. So, you know, this really isn't a big deal to me, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Because we are joined to Christ and we take Him everywhere we go and He's a part of everything we do. That applies to every facet of our life. Not just in regards to sexual immorality, but in regards to the entirety of the life that we live. So since we are one with Christ, and the one who engages in sexual immorality is one with his partner, Christ is placed, in Paul's reasoning, in an unthinkable situation. Christ is not personally tainted with the sin, but his reputation is dirtied because of the association we have made on His behalf because of our union with Him. I remember, I guess it was probably in the 90s and the 2000s, where there were some really high-profile moral failings of prominent pastors who would engage in adultery. And what did the unbelieving world say? <laughs> Those Christians, you know, they're all hypocrites, can't believe a thing they say. All they are after is your money. All they want to do is impose a bunch of rules and restrictions on you. Isn't that what people say? And that's exactly what happens. Anytime there's a moral failure amongst a pastor or a prominent Christian, the watching world just shakes their head in glee, saying, see, I knew it's not true. And when all of the world is aware of our own moral failing, moral failings and our shortcomings, they look at us and say, Huh, he professes to be a believer. He goes to church all the time. He says all this stuff, but I guess he doesn't really mean it. So this partnership is incredibly important because it reflects our salvation and our union with God through Jesus Christ His Son, 
to the world that sees the lives that we live. Now, lastly, number four in our outline, we see the pronouncement that Paul makes. The pronouncement is based upon everything that he has said in these preceding verses. And so what he says is this. First of all, run from immorality. Paul says in the beginning of verse verse 18, flee immorality. Now, there is no punctuation in the Greek, but you can see based on the translator's interpretation of the Greek, there's a period there, and that's a point of emphasis. Flee immorality. Run. Don't stand around. Don't give consideration. Don't try to rationalize or justify Run. In the Greek, this is stated in what's called a present imperative, and it means to run and keep on running until the danger has passed. So in the Greek culture and in ours, the danger is always there, and we must be aware of it, and we must always be ready to run. This danger is going to show up in places and in things that we may never expect. And so we need to be ready. We need to be ready to run at a moment's notice. There's a principle in Psalm 1 verse 1 that we would do to, that we would do well to remember. And here's what it says. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And so there's a progression that is communicated here. And the progression is very simply this. When we willingly stop and associate with sin, we will soon come to tolerate sin, and then we will eventually practice that sin. That's what Psalm 1-1 is really saying. I think that we often forget that our basic impulse and desire is so affected by sin that we must always keep our guard up. In James 1, he writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Well, when does that happen? Sometimes when we see it. Sometimes when we hear it. Sometimes when we think it. But we are tempted when we are carried away and enticed by our own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So our innate lusts and desires constantly seek gratification and we must constantly fight against them. So Paul's instruction is to run. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life when I've been really serious about dieting and losing weight. Can you identify with that? You know, it seems like when I'm dieting and really trying to lose weight and really all the time, not just when I'm dieting, I have a desire in me for certain kinds of food 
that will not allow me to lose any weight. In fact, the foods really aren't good for me. But man, I crave them. I want them. You know, I could, I could stop at Burger King every day. I could go through the bakery at Walmart every day. There's donuts and there's cupcakes and there's cookies and they have frozen cakes made with ice cream and there's all kinds of restaurants that are just a phone call away and so my stomach begins to growl and that mouth begins to salivate and pretty soon it's like, i got to have it. i got to have it. And so that's what's happening inside of us. In our flesh, we have these innate desires that seek to be gratified. And Paul says, run. Don't stop. Don't sit. Don't stand. Don't gather around. Run. So that's the first thing that Paul says, is flee immorality. Number two, Paul says you are sinning against your body. Verse 18 continues, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, this verse here, verse 18, this point forward, is incredibly difficult for the experts, the scholars, to translate because of the Greek words and the order and the meanings, etc., etc. So there's a lot of debate about precisely what Paul means. And we're not going to really spend too much time uh, sifting through all of that. So the point is this. While they wrongly believed that they were merely satisfying a biological appetite when they visited a temple prostitute, Paul says you are, in fact, sinning against your own body. Why? Because your body belongs to the Lord and the Lord is for the body. That's a part of the principle there. So what Paul is probably doing here is he is again using another popular Corinthian slogan of sin being outside the body. You can't really sin against your body because... Your body's evil. It doesn't matter what you do to your body. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. So it's probable that Paul is picking up on a popular Corinthian slogan. What makes this complicated is when Paul says every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, and there's a lot of speculation about what he means by that and what he doesn't mean by that. But he goes on to say, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So it appears that what Paul is doing is making a unique qualification to the seriousness of of sexual sin based upon two things. One, because our union with Christ, we are subjecting Him to this immorality. And secondly, sexual immorality subjects oneself to something that it was not intended for and certainly not what it was saved for. So it appears that there's Probably a mixture of things that Paul is trying to say here. And we can't take too literally the sinning outside the body or elevating sexual immorality as the most serious of all sins because people say, yeah, what about suicide? And what about murder? And what about this and that and the other? It's really not a debate over which one is the most serious sin. What it looks like Paul is doing is he's trying to capture their understanding that what you have willingly engaged in, primarily temple prostitution, and have just reduced as satisfying an appetite is incredibly serious 
because of the unique bond that exists in this union, and because of what you're subjecting Christ to, your body is a part of this partnership that God has made with you through your salvation. So it seems to be indicated in these final two verses that this is what Paul is talking about. So he says again, in different terminology, in number three, you are not your own. Your body belongs to the Lord, right? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So our bodies are weak and they're frail and they aren't perfect, yet... Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have been made to be a temple that God resides in. At the moment of our salvation, we are indwelt by Him and sealed in Him. And we belong to Him. When we hear of adultery or sexual immorality taking place in the physical building we call the church, we cringe at the thought. I've actually heard of this taking place. And people are just shocked. And if they know where the adultery or where the immorality took place, they don't want to go in that part of the building. They don't want to associate with it. It is so filthy to them that they just they don't want to be associated with it at all. But in reality, all sexual sin takes place in God's sanctuary. Why? Because He resides in us. So when we think about where we are taking our bodies and when we think about the reality that everywhere we take our body, we take Him with us, we're really taking a sanctuary of God into those places because He resides in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. He was given to us by the Father. He was given to us to lead us into a holy life. And since He indwells us, our bodies no longer belong to us, but to Him. And a sanctuary is made for what? For worship. You want to worship well? You prepare your body physically and spiritually to come into the sanctuary of the Lord to worship Him. So this truth should affect how we think about our bodies in terms of our overall health, but the context speaks most directly to taking the Lord who indwells us into this most despicable sin. Despicable because it is sin, but also because in doing so we forget the cost of what enables us to be joined to Him. And this is the point Paul makes here, number four, you are bought with a price. Our physical body that will be glorified in eternity, our spiritual life, which has been saved from the consequence of sin, has been paid for with a price. Verse 20. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Our redemption from the power and the consequence of sin came at a high cost. It came through the very life of Jesus Christ Himself. This is why Peter would write in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 
knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I would imagine that you and I would be willing to give every physical possession we had in order to buy our salvation if that's what it required. But that's not what purchased it. It was the very blood of Christ. The body of a Christian is God's temple. It was secured through the blood of Christ. And this temple is made for worship. Therefore, We are to have one supreme purpose, and that is to worship and glorify God through this life that we live. And my friend, we don't do that when we engage in sexual immorality. So this is a call to live so as to bring honor to the person of God who alone is worthy of our obedience and our adoration. And I repeat myself, it's it's often easy for us when we hear about sexual immorality, especially the specific application to temple prostitution, and think, you know, it really doesn't apply to me because we don't have temple prostitutes. I don't know any place where I could go to a temple prostitute. But the fact of the matter is this. While that is an indication of an internal problem, our internal problem is indicated with other kind of sin. Now, if you and I knew of believers who were engaged in that kind of immorality, we would probably say, gee, I wonder if they're really saved. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we question their salvation? Well, remember, it's not about the seriousness of the sin. It's about the willingness to engage in sin as if our salvation is some insignificant component we add to this life that we live. That's not the case at all. Would you join me in prayer?